And we're continuing in our series looking for a leader as we've been going through 1 Samuel. And this is a tough passage, one where we see the glory departs. You would have seen it right at the end there in verse 21 and 22, arguably the key verses of the passage. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the death of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Ichabod um, kind of means uh, not just the glory has departed, but a kind of questioning, where is the glory? Where is the glory gone? Um, how is it going to come back? Where's it gone? And so much of human endeavor is about a search for glory. Um, in the Hebrew meaning for glory, there's a sense of weightiness, of heaviness, of significance. And so much of the words that we use that we attach to understanding of glory um, convey that in the English. So we, we talk of people coming this, to the city to make their mark. Do you hear the kind of weight word? To, to have an impact, um, to make a dent with their career. Even you know, on, a, you know, on a gentler level, just the idea that something matters. I mean, what is matter? And why do we use that for significance other than weightiness? Matter is just pure bulk, it's just weightiness. And so much of what we're trying to do in the city and around here in London and what human beings are trying to do in the overall scheme of their lives is a search for glory. Listen to Susan Orlean, who's a journalist for The New Yorker and an author of a number of books exploring this theme. And she articulates the kind of drive, human drive for glory brilliantly. She wrote, like everyone else, I too had set out to be remembered. I'd wanted to create something permanent in my life some proof that everything in its way mattered, that working hard mattered, that feeling things mattered, that even sadness and loss mattered because it was all part of something that would live on. We all seek glory. Some overly, some of you here are dreaming about London being the place where you can make it big and your name might not be up in lights, but it will be celebrated by your contemporaries, by those in your career. But those of us as well who maybe not be going for such an obvious search for glory want to know that we have significance, that our lives matter, that the things we do matter, just as Susan Orlean said. Tragically, in this passage, we see that much of human endeavor is seeking for glory in the wrong place. It's not so much that the search for glory itself is wrong. We're made by God in the image of God, even higher than the angels. We have enormous significance and glory. But one of our great problems is we seek it in the wrong places. We're walking around saying, where is the glory? And looking for it in the wrong places. Particularly here, we're going to see tragically God's glory departs from his people because they seek it in the empty glory of false religion. So we're going to look at this passage under three headings, the empty glory of false religion, the exposing judgment on false religion, and then lastly, where true glory can be found. So let's look first of all at the empty glory of false religion. The empty glory of false religion. Now, one of the main areas that we as human beings search for glory is in the religious sphere. And even if you are thinking, well, we're in the secular West now, so thank goodness we've thrown that off, we've not so much shifted away from religion, more, the sociologists will tell you, that we've shifted from formal religion to informal religion or spirituality, from seeking it in belonging to religious communities to more an informal sense of believing in spirituality. And a big part of this is deep down, we still think we'll find glory there. But these verses warn us that false religion will not lead you to glory, nor will a general spirituality. 
In these verses, there's a contrast going on between Samuel. He's mentioned there in verse 1 of chapter 4. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. If you've been with us over the previous weeks, Samuel's prominence has been growing as he has been growing. We've seen him grow from a boy, and now he's a young man. And his prominence is growing as his word as a great prophet comes to all Israel. But in contrast to Samuel and his mother Hannah and his household, is Eli, the chief priest who's getting older, and his family is declining because of the bad choices and the corruption that is in his family. And we've heard judgment pronounced on his family for the abuses of his sons and his failure as a weak leader to call them out on that. And we've heard prophecies of judgment twice, once in chapter 2 and once in chapter 3. And this is the chapter where those prophecies of judgment on Eli's house as he declines and as Samuel increases come to pass. And it all comes about as the Philistines capture the ark. And as we go through these verses, I want you to see how the, the writer of Samuel carefully constructs it to show us a tragic irony of their false religion and the fact that there's nothing behind it. It's empty and it leads them down the wrong path. First of all, look at verse 1. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. In Hebrew, Ebenezer means God will help us. But there's no seeking of God here. No prayer to God, no crying out to God for him to help them. The name is ironic because there they are, totally man-reliant. Then verse 2, after the Philistines defeat them on the battlefield, the Israelites cry out, but not to God. There's no crying out of prayer. They don't seek him. They just cry out. And so often in Israel's history, when they're defeated, that's the turning point when they turn back to God. We saw that in Judges sometimes. But they don't turn and cry out to God here. They just cry out in a general sense. Then there's the presumption of verse 3. Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant to Shiloh, they say, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Notice it's referred to as not just the ark, but the ark of the Lord's covenant, which is significant because they're in breach of covenant. In other words, they're made for a relationship with God. God has clearly articulated how he wants them to live in humble dependence on him. But they've completely turned away from God. They're trusting in themselves. They're trusting in false gods and false religion. And so how presumptuous that they can bring the ark into their midst as though God will just bless what they're doing if they have no regard for him and for his standards and his relationship. Verse 4, look at the beginning. Look at how the ark is described here. It's described as the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. And there's an irony here. Is this a true description of who God is? The Lord who's the commander of all the armies of heaven, that's what the Lord Almighty means, who sits enthroned between the cherubim, the most senior angelic beings, such as his holiness as they gather around him crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, heaven and earth are full of his glory. Or is it just a description of the engraving on top of the Ark of the Covenant? An ornate box, but without the glory, nothing particularly to it, and Two cherubim at either end stretching their wings out as though the Lord sits just on top of a little box. You know, you can put God in a box or at least on top of a box, which is what they seem to be trying to do here. Which is the true description? Is he the glorious God of heaven or a domestic deity you can manipulate? 
And then we get at the end of verse 4, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And we've seen their corrupt and abusive leadership before. Do we really think that we can have corrupt and abusive leaders and still expect God to go with us? And then verse 5, the ground shakes when the ark comes. And sometimes in the Bible, when God comes, the ground shakes because his weightiness, his glory is such that the earth can't hold it. It's as though it shakes the very foundations of the earth. But here, it's not shaking because of God. It's shaking just because human beings give a loud cheer. And then verse 7, it's ironic because the Philistines seem to show a greater theological understanding than God's people themselves. They say, God has come into the camp, they said, and they fear that this will be the God who conquered the Egyptians. And yet Israel seemed to have no such memory of God's glory and how he delivered them under the Passover. Throughout the narrative, on the surface level, Israel could be seen to almost be doing all things right, bring the ark in, you know, as though you need to bring God in. But do you see how it's just surface level going through the motions? It lacks any substance. Recent years, there's been the growing genre of zombie films. It's really boomed. I don't know if you love zombie films. I've not seen any myself. But, you know, you think of films like uh, The Walking Dead or World War Z or... Um, that seminal piece of cinema, Pride and Prejudice, and Zombies. If you've seen it afterwards and it's good, you have to educate me why it's so good. But commentators have asked, why the obsession with zombies? Uh, why are zombies you know, so kind of popular, and films and TV series about zombies? And the insightful commentators have noticed that the thing that scares us about zombies is zombies aren't monsters out there. Zombies are us. We become the monsters. And the monstrosity of zombies is that they're us, but with the insides corrupted. So distorted, so corrupted that they become dead and empty. In other words, the fear is not that the world is going to be ended from some monster out there, but the fear is that we are the real monsters. The fear is that we may bring the end of the world and the apocalypse about by being corrupted and distorted and dead and empty inside. That's the fear. What a poignant fear that is. Well, do you see the danger here of zombie religion? Out looks normal. Inside is corrupted, it's distorted, it's dead, it's empty. Zombie religion of just going through the motions. No humble dependence on God in authentic prayer, just a religious show. No seeking of God's word and heeding his voice, just a vain, I like to think of God as such. No concern for God's glory and his holiness, just a concern for our branding and our numbers and our church and our strategy. No fear of God before their eyes, just the presumptuous belief that we can manipulate God, domesticate him, and he will merely bless it benignly from heaven and saying, boys will be boys, girls will be girls. It's empty. There's a real warning here for us as a church of a superficial display of religion that lacks substance. You know, let it never be said of us that we care far more about the form of things than the substance, about going through the motions and looking good rather than actual real, deep-seated concern for God's glory. And the tragedy of this is it can go on for quite a while, generations even, whilst the rot sets in. That's why it's so important for us to gather together to pray, because in some sense you can't really fake corporate dependence on God in prayer, really seeking after him really asking him for his will to be done, his kingdom 
to come. A concern for his glory more than our brand, our reputation, our advancement, and our glory. On an individual level, can I just say, and I'm aware of this myself, so I'm saying this as much to myself as I'm giving it to you, it is easy, isn't it, just to go through the motions. Good things that we do, read our Bible, say our prayers, come to church, serve on a rotor. Look, they're good things, but hear me clearly, if they don't have the substance of a passion for God and a concern for his glory driving them, if they don't have the gospel at the heart of a humble dependence on God saying, I'm not worthy, but I receive your grace and so I'm empowered to serve, if it's just going through the motions, it's zombie religion. And if you're here looking into Christianity, there is a belief in our society today that spirituality is far more about the fervency with which you believe something than the content of what you believe. Can we just put that to bed? The Israelites here are very fervent. I mean, after all, they're in a war situation. They don't want to lose. There's no questioning the fervency there, but it's completely void of reality. They're not listening to God. They're just wanting to construct God. There's no letting God be God. There's instead a sense of we can domesticate and manipulate God. And so much of modern spirituality is about putting the individual at the center of it. It's a concern for God's, for not for God's glory, but for man's glory. Be warned. Authentic spirituality is from God to us, not us seeking to make God in our image. Well, if that's the empty glory of false religion, look at the exposing judgment on false religion and the speed with which the hammer of God's judgment falls in verses 10 to 11 is quite shocking. Look at verse 10 with me. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Done. Two verses. And the hammer of God's judgment falls. Do you see how quickly it comes? Defeated. Fled. Slaughtered. Lost 30,000. Captured. Died. Bang, 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 bang. In two verses, it's all unraveled. God's judgment has fallen. Not only that, but then verses 12 to 18, we get the judgment that we've been expecting on Eli and his sons for the way they've turned away from the glory of God, from the way that Eli has become complicit in their abuse and the cover-up of that abuse. And we get in verse 15, Eli described as a man who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see and were intended to see that his physical blindness is symptomatic of his spiritual blindness. And here's the warning. If you consistently turn a blind eye to sin in your life, if you consistently push away the warnings of Scripture and of your friends who are trying to help you, you will become blind and you will no longer be able to see just like Eli at the end of his life. And he's so blind that even though he's been told twice of the judgment that's coming on his house, in verse 16 and 17, he asked the man, what happened, my son? He should know what's happened. It's been prophesied. And verse 17, the man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines. The army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. What did he expect? And then in verse 18, there's a play on the word heavy, The same word in verse 18, heavy, is the same word, kavod, glory. As though Eli's glory, which should have been the glory of the privileged position of being the chief priest of Israel, right at the religious heart of Israel, now his glory is gone and all we're left with is 
the manifestation of his greed and the greed of his sons, the fact that he's become a big, heavy man, and that's the thing that ultimately kills him. And the irony there. But it's not just judgment on Eli and his sons. In verses 19 to 22, we also get judgment on the nation played out in this intensely emotional scene of Phinehas's wife and her death as she gives birth to a son. And we're intended, if we've been watching through 1 Samuel so far, to compare this birth with Hannah's birth. And you remember Hannah, the mother of Samuel, when she gave birth to Samuel, it was one of joy and celebration. The joy resonated for a whole chapter as chapter two was given over to her song of celebration. Here, we just get a few words of Phinehas's wife in total despair. Hannah's birth was one of life coming from a dead womb and a woman that was too old and shouldn't by rights give birth. Here we get a woman in her prime who's fit and healthy, dying as she gives birth. Hannah names her son Samuel because I asked the Lord for him, she says. In other words, her son is symbolic of her prayerful devotion and commitment to God and his glory and his holiness. Here, this poor woman calls her child Ichabod because the glory has departed. Symbolic of God's judgment on her husband and the whole corruption in the nation. Hannah's birth is one of hope. This birth is one of aching despair. And what is the great difference between these two births? Well, it comes down to the difference between the true devotion of Hannah and the false religion of Phinehas at the heart of Israel. It is very painful, isn't it? Look, on the back of the First and Second World War, there was, in the UK, a situation where Christianity was pretty widespread. But there was a prevailing belief that started to take root on the back of the First and Second World War that now, in a new modern 20th century, people would no longer believe things like a God who actually acted in space-time and history, things like a God of miracles or a God who could raise his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. And so the narrative went, if the church just compromises on those things and just domesticates God and dials him down and makes him a, more a God of you know, imagination and a secular God, then this new liberal theology will be accepted widespread. And the church drank from that Kool-Aid, and you know what happened? The liberal church became weak, and ineffective, people left the church in their droves. And that's the situation we find ourselves in now. And yet the same belief is still pushed on the church today. Now, supremely about ethical matters, that if we just dial down the things that our culture finds uncomfortable, things like sexual ethics and gender and beginning of life ethics, things that the church has held to for 2,000 years, just dial those down. And again, we'll give you cultural acceptance. We'll give you the glory of popularity. And again, the church is in prone to drink the Kool-Aid and to believe it, despite the fact that the last 50 years have shown it to be a complete shambles, despite the fact that globally the church grows in places like Iran and China where it does not enjoy cultural influence and cultural acceptability, but is often viciously persecuted. Just this last week, on the back of an announcement on the 23rd from the Church of England, restating in the light of civil partnerships and a change in law, its orthodox position on biblical sexuality. On the back of that, there was a classic backlash in the press. Politicians, journalists, and tragically, even bishops, all lining up to condemn the statement. Now, you can argue about whether the statement 
fully did a great job of engaging with the pastoral sensitivities. And look, if this affects you directly, I'm conscious I'm saying this, and I would love to talk to you about that myself. But nonetheless, all it was was really a press release, you know, reaffirming the church's orthodox position that's been the same and unchanged for 2,000 years. But the howls from the press and the howls from the politicians, and then swiftly came the compromise of the bishops, all lining up to say, well, well, I didn't really know about it, and you know, I'm not sure I fully agree with it. And all of it is driven by this prevailing belief that if we just cave into the culture, that the culture will work with us with open arms. But of course, you know that's not the case. A church that caves into the culture loses an ability to be prophetic and to critique the culture. A bit like having a friend who merely just becomes an echo chamber to your own views. They just become sycophantic. You lose all respect for them. And people will lose respect for the church. And I know if I've been talking to a number of you over the past few weeks, that you cop the brunt of this in your workplace. The question comes, you're not one of those Christians, are you? You don't believe that, do you? You can't possibly believe that. And the implicit promise there is if you just turn around and say, no, no, I'm not one of those, my church is enlightened, then they'll welcome you with open arms and accept you. Learn from history. That won't work. The church that compromises on such things, that gives up the glory of God so cheaply, the glory departs from that church, and it ends up being an empty echo as God's judgment falls on it. Well, what's the answer? Lastly, let's see where true glory is found, the true glory of Jesus Christ. The true glory of Jesus Christ. In verse 22, the glory departs from Israel. It's a huge moment in the Bible. And of course, one of the questions is, when will God's glory return again? And we're going to see in chapter 7, not to give spoilers away, that there are glimpses of God's glory returning as Samuel establishes his faithful ministry and a concern for God's glory right at the heart of Israel. We'll see that in a few weeks. And then there are other high points in Israel's history where the glory seems to return supremely Uh, The dedication of the temple when Solomon builds the temple in 1 Kings 8 and the temple is filled with God's glory. But ultimately, God's glory never stays with Israel because Israel can't stay faithful to God and his covenant. They, like we, too often seek glory in the wrong places and are unfaithful. But remember two weeks ago, the great promise of chapter 2, verse 35. Flick back a page and look at chapter 2. Verse 35, the promise of real glory. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. This promise looks forward to Jesus Christ and this is what is said about him when he comes in John's gospel, John 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, you want to see glory? You want to see the glory of God touching down amongst humanity? Look at the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the revelation of God's full glory, the truly glorious one. We said at the beginning that so much of human endeavor is a seeking after glory. Well, consider the life of Jesus Christ, the one who did not seek glory, but whose life was more glorious than any other. 
He had a public ministry for three short years, and in those three short years, he impacted the world. He made a dent in the world. He had a life of significance like the world has never known before or since. Albert Einstein called him the luminous Nazarene for the way that his light has singularly lit up history. And yet, he gave all of that glory and that significance up, didn't he? Because his life was really all about his death. And his death was not glorious, not by human standards. On the cross, he was stripped. Everything was taken away from him. He was humiliated. It was the most inglorious and shameful death that had ever been devised. That was the whole point of crucifixion. And he did that, not only rejected by the disciples, not only rejected by the chief priests of the law and by all the people, but rejected ultimately by his father on the cross. For all of the ways that we seek glory in the wrong places rather than seek it in a relationship with God, he bore the shame. He was humiliated so that we, through his humiliation, might receive the glory of God. His life was cut short so that we might live forever. He was treated as a criminal so that we might be declared sons and daughters of the most high, glorious God of heaven. There's a scene in an episode of the crime-solving series NCIS, which is the kind of naval CSI, um, Naval Criminal Investigative Services. And I remember watching the, um, the scene, and in it there's a character called Ernie Yost, and he's an old man, he's humble, but he's accused of a historic war crime. And so the, the, um, uh, uh, the army police come to arrest him, two marines in full regalia come to arrest him. And as they reach forward to arrest him, Ernie Yost's tie moves out of the way to reveal the fact that he's wearing the Medal of Honor, the highest medal, the most glorious medal for outstanding acts of bravery. And the moment they see the Medal of Honor, the Marines stop in their tracks, pull back, stand to attention, and salute him. And what's brilliant about that scene is the director actually got a guest actor in to play it. Ernie Yost is played by a guy called Charles Durning, who himself, in real life, was a World War II veteran and hero. He received three Purple Hearts, the Silver and Bronze Star for Valor, and the World War II Victory Medal for exceptional acts of valor. It's a nice turn. And you see the point? Because of that medal of honor, that recognition of the glory that was due him, he's instantly treated differently by those people around him. They see him differently, and more to the point, he sees himself Differently. He carries himself with a dignity and a humility because he knows he is glorious. Friends, if we just knew the glory that was conferred on us by God's grace in Jesus Christ, made in the image of God, given infinite glory by Jesus' death in our place, declared sons and daughters of the Most High, even higher than the angels, if we just knew that, wouldn't that change our strivings? As you go out and you hear the world saying, make a mark, do something, get the significance, you say, I don't need to. I've got it all in Jesus Christ. And that liberates you to engage in the world, not as someone who vainly seeks after glory, but someone who's already got glory and who can go in the world as an agent of change. So many of us search for glory because we haven't realized the glory that we have received from Jesus Christ or the glory that is on offer to us if we'll just let him give it to us. 
and this changes false religion. How do you undercut false religion? Only when you realize the cost that Jesus Christ had to bear for you for turning away from God and the true glory that is available to you in Jesus Christ. You look at him and you say, I want to worship you. It's not about the show. It's about the substance of you and what you've done for me. He becomes the heart of true worship. For those of you who are facing difficulty standing for Christ, there's this glorious verse in 1 Peter 4 where it says this, if you are insulted for the name of Christ. In other words, at that very moment when you feel so insignificant and where the world crowns around you and says, shame on you, at that moment, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. At that moment, the medal of honor hangs around your chest. And it means that because you have the glory of Christ, you don't need to strive for it and seek it in other areas, trying to get it from people respecting you or your family or your material possessions or your career. You already have it in Christ. So the empty glory, the empty promises and glory of false religion, the exposing judgment of false religion and the true glory that Jesus Christ offers us. What a difference it would make if we really grasped that. Let's pray that this would impact our hearts. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, how we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimately glorious one, and yet how we need your forgiveness. All of us, Lord, I'm conscious, I'm prone to it. All of us, of course, can be prone to just going through the motions, a zombie religion that lacks substance, that lacks a passion for your glory. Lay it upon our hearts, Heavenly Father, that we would have a concern for your glory, that we would be so captivated by the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, by his ultimately significant life and his death for us, that all the other things we'd be prone to turn to to seek glory would fade away and we'd be left just with him. Give us a passion for him, a desire to see him increase and us decrease for the glory of his name we pray. Amen.